As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolas, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. I'm Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me, those of you who are here live and those of you who will be listening after this recording is posted. So for the past 14 weeks now, we have been slowly walking through the gospel according to St. Mark, chapter by chapter. And this is kind of a surreal moment for me as we finish this first book, the Gospels, because I've been working with the Gospel according to St. Mark, as my friend Vince over here has pointed out, for about two years now. But for the past seven months, I've been spending a lot of time reading and going through commentaries and drafting up my notes and putting everything together for this Bible study. And so now as we come to the close of this account of the Gospel, it's very interesting to me to think about how my mentality has changed over the past two years, really, when I look at this gospel. For a long time in my life, I kind of saw this gospel as the short one, you know, the spark notes version of Matthew, as I used to call it. And after spending the years that I have with this text, I've realized more and more that this gospel account is a lot deeper than I initially thought. It just kind of highlights to me my ignorance looking at the gospel in the first place. Because again, all I saw was this is a short book. It's only 16 chapters long. Chapters are pretty short. And the bits and pieces that I read, I'm like, oh, this sounds very similar to Matthew. So it must just be it's framework. It must just be the beta version of Matthew. Yet, as we're going to read here with the 16th chapter, we're going to see how different this account is. It begins abruptly. We begin with that thesis statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And throughout the entire gospel account, we have been searching for that question of who is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the suffering servant, the Son of Man. All of these titles have been continually presented to us, and the various accounts that are given to us by Mark the Evangelist have been 
having us ask this question, who is Jesus? And in the same way that Christ abruptly begins his ministry, we're going to see in the 16th chapter, his ministry end, in a sense. But really, it's not even an end, because the way that this gospel ends, and we'll get into the long endings and the short endings, opens the door for the life of the church. And in opening that door, we see that Christ's mission doesn't only live on through his direct actions, as we've seen through the entire gospel account up to this point, but it carries on through us. And that's because as he's resurrected, as he ascends, he doesn't abandon us. And in fact, even though it's not mentioned in this account, he sends us a comforter. That's the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within each and every one of us. So when we put on Christ, when we are baptized into Christ, we carry out his characteristics. We carry out the mission he's calling each and every one of us towards. And that mission the framework of which has been laid out throughout this entire gospel narrative. And within the longer ending that we're going to go over, we're going to see the call of that mission hammered home. We're going to see the call of the apostles hammered home. And since we're all within this line of apostolic succession, all of us who are in the church, all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we can then see this as our call. So even though we already read the first eight verses of chapter 16 last week, we're going to go through, as we have throughout the entire gospel account, this final chapter now. And we're going to try to see what is it that our Lord is trying to reveal to us in this resurrection account. I think it's important, even though we only have 20 verses here, for us to take some time and contemplate the resurrection and our call as Christians today and what this all means. Because oftentimes we read through the whole narrative of Christ's life, which is extensive. We read through the passion narratives, which for us Orthodox Christians are embedded in our minds because we live them during Holy Week. And yet when it comes time for the resurrection, since it's usually one to two chapters, we just quickly go over them, often because many of us don't get to hear them every single Sunday read during the Orthros. But even those little snippets of the post-resurrectional accounts are easy to gloss over. And oftentimes we miss the importance of the resurrection. So with all that out of the way, let's move on to Mark chapter 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen. 
And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us, for the door of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone was rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had come upon them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So before we pull apart this verse and try to find the meaning within all of these lines, I think it's important to acknowledge a reality about the Gospel account of St. Mark. And it's that the earliest manuscripts of St. Mark's Gospel account end after verse 8. And that was when they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling astonishment had come upon them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This seems like a very strange ending for a book, and yet it's also as abrupt as the beginning of St. Mark's Gospel account. St. Mark doesn't have a prologue, like the Gospel according to St. Luke. His prologue, in fact, is the account of John the Baptist, which is very quick. But besides that, all that we have is the title that we mentioned before, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And yet we see within the other two synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew and Luke, there is an infancy narrative. There is a beginning to the narrative. But for Mark... Basically, we're in constant motion, as we've mentioned before. And that motion begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, the seemingly immediate baptism of Christ, his being sent out into the wilderness, his entering into ministry, all the way up and through his crucifixion. And now, as we come to his resurrection from the dead... This motion continues because these women are being sent out. They're being sent out to preach that Christ has risen from the dead. Yet, what we see here is that Christ is going out before them to Galilee. And in going out before them, he's leading the way. So we see this continued motif when Christ tells us, take up our cross and follow after him. We know that we're not doing anything that hasn't already been done by him. We know that we are called to follow in his footsteps. And that should show us that we're not doing these things in isolation. We don't believe in a God who gives us a moral rule book to prescribe, ascribe to that it's impossible for us, for us to do, um, and also is something that he himself has not experienced. Christ 
by becoming a human being, by taking flesh and dwelling among us, confined himself to the reality of being a human being. Because we believe, again, he has two natures. He is fully God, and he is also fully man. So during his ministry, during his time on earth, he is confound to the same strictures that we human beings are in the way that we live our life. Even unto death. But here we see that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, rather, who was crucified, has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The proclamation that these women see and here is that Jesus, who has died, has truly risen from the dead. He's not here. Your expectations have been subverted. And I would say that's a major theme within St. Mark's Gospel account. Because St. Mark takes all of our expectations and continually flips them on their head. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Yet, there's a different understanding that we see of the people today from what we have now of who the Messiah is. We have the luxury of hindsight in thinking about Jesus the Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ is a very, are two synonymous terms, two synonymous names for us. And yet, Christ is a title. The Christ is the anointed one. The Christ is the Messiah that was waited for by Israel, the people of God. But there was a belief that he was going to be a military Messiah. He was going to liberate them from the oppressive forces of this world in the same way that David did. And yet, that's flipped on its head. Because, yes, Jesus did come to liberate us. But he didn't come to liberate us merely from a worldly oppressor. Rather, he came to do warfare, as we saw from the very beginning of the Gospel account, with the forces, the demonic forces, of this world. He's come to confront sin. He's come to reorient us towards the Father, so that way we, too, could have a life in him. And to be able to do that, he had to come and break the bonds of the evil one. He had to come break through our hardness of heart. Through his ministry, through his passion, but ultimately through the revelation of his resurrection from the dead. Because as Jesus descends into Hades, as Jesus enters into death, because we see the angel proclaim, and we'll get back to the angel in a second, Jesus has truly died. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he's not here. He's risen. See the place where they laid him. And this is the testimony that's brought forth by these women. Now, we see a theophany in a sense. We see a revelation of God within the words of this young man. It is not 
specifically expressed that he is an angelic being. At least directly, he's not referred to as an angel. But he is very clearly a messenger of God. And as we see by the characteristics of him, wearing a white robe and sitting on the right hand of the tomb, he is noble. And the right side of the king is identified with a place of authority, a place of honor. So this angel is sitting in a place of honor, and he's adorned with a white robe. And if we remember from the account of the Transfiguration, the only other time we've heard of anyone wearing white within this gospel narrative was when Christ was transfigured and his robes became white as snow. So white that no bleacher could possibly make them so in this world. So what we see there is a callback to the theophany of Christ's transfiguration. In a sense, Christ's garment during the transfiguration is prefiguring the proclamation of the angel to these women. Because again, very closely tied with the transfiguration where the apostles saw Christ's true state, his transfigured state, is his proclamation of his coming passion, as well as his resurrection. So you can't divide these things. You can't separate the reality that in Christ's passion, we see his resurrection. As Christ presents us with his authority, his divine authority, his divine messiahship, we always also see these echoes of the passion as we've mentioned time again through uh, this Bible study. So as we look at this young man, the final characteristic that we see that identifies him as a messenger of the Lord, an angelic being, is the response of the women, because they were amazed. Yet the angel says, do not be amazed. And in this back and forth, what we see is a typical response of humanity when confronted with the angelic messengers of the Lord. The response that we have when we see something that is other is amazement. It's fear. And it's that same amazement and that same fear that leads to these women trembling with astonishment and they say nothing, for they are afraid. Before we spend time with that final verse, it's important to look at the faith these women are showing when they first approach the tomb. When they question among themselves who will roll away the stone for them, because it's very large. They're not doing this because they forgot about the stone and they're halfway to the tomb, so now they're saying, oh, who's going to do that? That's to show, at least that verse there, is to show their faith. These are the same women that watched from afar as Christ went through his passion and died on the cross. These are the same women who watched Christ as he was laid in the tomb. And as they returned to that tomb with spices to anoint his body, they're on a mission. 
And that mission is to give their teacher, give their Lord, the respect of a proper burial. And they will do all in their power to be able to make that happen. So even though they know that there is the stone that's going to stand in their way, in faith, they march forward. In love for their Savior, they march forward. And what they receive when they arrive is a greater gift than anyone could imagine. Because when they arrive, they see that the large stone was rolled away. And in the tomb, instead of Jesus' body, as they were expecting, they see this angelic being. And they're struck with awe and amazement. And this being gives them the revelation of the joy that has come into the world. Christ has risen. And in his resurrection, we see that death itself has been trampled down because the architect of life has entered into Hades. The architect of life has died himself. And as death is confronted with life, the equation just doesn't work out. There's no equation for life entering into death because death is the absence of life. Death is our separation of soul and body. But death, in a more dramatic way, is our separation from God. So when God enters into death, he shows that death has no true grasp on us. And that allows for us to be able to have an opportunity for eternal life. And this is what the women receive. They receive this revelation. And the angel tells them, go forth to Galilee. Because Jesus has gone ahead of you there. And tell the disciples, and specifically we see, and tell Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And the reason why Peter is singled out here is because out of all of the apostles, we see them all falling away. But Peter, as we can recall, had this dramatic experience of denying Christ three times and then falling away. So by singling Peter out, what the angel is doing is saying that, hey, even Peter can still repent. Even this one apostle who utterly rejected Christ and we have an example of him dramatically doing so, even he is still called to carry his cross and carry out this apostolic call of being sent out to the nations. And so Peter is dignified. Peter is acknowledged, even though he's fallen away. And this should be, again, a reminder to us that as long as we have breath in us, as long as we are in this life, we have the opportunity to repent. But that requires us to humble ourselves. That requires for us to be like the prodigal son, as we read about a couple weeks ago, who came to himself as he was in this low place with the pigs. 
and in coming to himself and realizing where he was by being in this low stature, he set to work. He reoriented himself. He repented and returned to the Father. This is what Peter will do. This is what all of the 11 apostles will do. And even these women who, to end this gospel, if we look at the short ending, are silent because they're afraid. Even they will eventually bring this gospel message to the world. And it's important to realize that the way that St. Mark closes this gospel, if this was the intended ending, shows us that all of humanity, because so far it's only been men who have fled from Christ or refused to share the gospel message. So in the silence of these women, in their falling away in this moment, it shows us that all humanity, when confronted by the revelation of the divine, the revelation of God, is tempted to fall away from that call. And this expresses to us the magnitude of a call towards a life in Christ. Because if even these women who have seen that the Lord is not in the tomb, they have seen this messenger of the Lord, they have heard this good news, and yet they're afraid so they say nothing to anyone. If even they fall silent when confronted with the awe-inspiring glory that is a part of this life in Christ, well then, how does that leave us? How do we respond when we have a revelation of God in our life? Do we take up our cross? Do we reorient the whole of our life? Or do we treat it as a spark that gives us a little bit of fuel for a moment? And then as the tides of this life continually hit us, we allow for that spark to be snuffed out. Is that what we will do? That's not the end, though. Because we need to remember that the church lives on. So even if this book ends on a seemingly dour note of the people who received this gift not sharing it with the broader church, we know as members of the church, even if we didn't have the Acts of the Apostles, even if we didn't have the other gospel accounts that continue this narrative, we know just because there is a church that exists rich with the tradition of these saints who took on this apostolic call and were sent out and spread the gospel to all nations, we know because of that tradition that they eventually picked up their cross and followed after Christ. Because whether they want him to or not, Christ is on his way to Galilee. He's been sent before them. And now it is their call, like it's our call, to pick up our cross and follow after him. So if St. Mark the Evangelist ended his gospel here, as it seems he did, 
this seems to me to be the point that he's trying to make. So that Christ is going before us regardless of if we want him to or not. We may all fall away from him. We may all fall away from the call that he's giving to us. But that reality of the risen Lord, the reality of the call for us to be apostles, is always there in front of us. So even if we miss that for a moment, even if we fall away here and now, we always have this ability to come to ourselves, to realize the call that is set before us, and to reorient ourselves towards Christ so we can be co-workers in his mission. So that way, when we put on Christ in our baptism, we may be able to reaffirm that baptism in action every minute of every hour of every day as we pick up our crosses and follow after him. And this is emblematic in the life of the church. This is emblematic in the rich succession of saints that we have in our tradition, of which we are all in line of, with. So if this is where St. Mark ends his gospel, it is not a dour note, because we are living in part two. We are living in the church which is the natural result of this entire gospel account. But fortunately for us, there is a broader tradition of a longer ending of St. Mark's gospel, a tradition that is accepted by our church, a tradition that you will see carried out in most Bibles, and that is an additional 12 verses the gospel, which pick up from common materials that we see in both Matthew and Luke. So moving on to verse 9, we will delve into the longer ending of St. Mark's gospel. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. She went out and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. So here we see that on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, he appears first to Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene was one of the three women who came with spices to anoint Christ's body. And she's also one of the three who left and said nothing out of fear. Yet she returns. And in her return, we see Christ first appear to her. So before Mary Magdalene, he does not appear to anyone else. And it's said that she has, was possessed by seven demons, that she had many demons within her that Christ exercised. And this is to show us that Christ first comes to the sinner, because we are all sinners. 
Christ comes to lowly because we are all lowly when compared to God. And so he comes to this woman who was before demonically possessed. And she is then told to go to the apostles. So she goes to the apostles and tells them, that all of them, they're mourning and they're weeping, that he is risen. He's alive. And yet, they don't believe her. But it's in her picking up of this mission that we see two titles given to Mary Magdalene. She is equal to the apostles, a rank that is not very common among the saints. And she is also known as apostle to the apostles. Now again, if we understand apostle as meaning those who are sent out, ultimately those who are sent out to proclaim the gospel, Mary Magdalene here, as she comes to the apostles, is emblematic of this apostolic role. She may have fallen away for a moment. She may have stayed silent because she was afraid. And yet when Christ revealed himself to her and tells her to go out, to be sent out, to proclaim the good news of his resurrection, she does it willingly. She gets back on track. And because of that, she's remembered in this way. She's remembered as being not only equal to the apostles, but the apostle to the apostles themselves. It's not a coincidence that through a woman named Mary, we see the Logos become incarnate. And as we'll talk about when we start the gospel according to St. Luke, it's through the obedience of a woman named Mary to the will of God that we see this take place. Because God does not force himself upon Mary. The incarnation, as again, we'll talk about in more detail when we start the gospel according to St. Luke, is a product of Mary's free will. Because through Mary's yes, she becomes a new Eve. Because if we go all the way back to Genesis, we see that it's through a no to the will of God, that the fall begins. God's will was that humanity would not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And yet, Eve falls to the temptation of the serpent, and she disobeys the will of God, a will that had reason behind it. And yet, it was not time for humanity to fully grasp that reason. And for that reason, we see the fall of the feminine part of humanity. In the similar way that through Adam's throwing of Eve under the bus, in a sense, and then ultimately throwing God under the bus by saying, the woman that you gave to me gave me this fruit. We see that's how the masculine half of humanity falls.
So both are shirking off responsibility. Both are denying ultimately the will of God. And that begins this trend of us falling further and further away from God through our disobedience as well. Yet in Mary's yes, when the angel Gabriel comes to her and says that you will bear a son and his name shall be Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. In her obedience in saying yes to this call and everything that comes along with it, we see the wheels get set in motion for the redemptive act of God. We see the Messiah come into the world through the participation, freely, of a human person with the will of God. And in the same vein, we see the revelation of the resurrection come through a Mary. Mary Magdalene is the first to receive this good news, and through her obedience towards God, she's sent out and she shares that news with the apostles. And what do we see as a response of the apostles? They will not believe her. Why? Well, there could be a whole host of reasons why. First and foremost, of have they seen a man raised from the dead? In their falling away, we see the apostles continue this trend of having their hearts hardened. Jesus, throughout this entire gospel account, has continually prophesied of his death and resurrection. The seeds have been planted in the apostles, in a sense, to be able to receive this revelation. And yet, in their grief, in their mourning, they close themselves off from this reality even being a possibility. So when Mary Magdalene comes to them and says that the Lord is risen, they will not believe it. Yet we see the cog, the wheels of the church, that is, start to go in motion. Through this spreading of the gospel message that's first carried out by Mary Magdalene, the apostle to the apostles. And so we should hold her up as an example of a person who is flawed. She says nothing when she's initially called out, yet when she sees the Lord face to face, when she has this revelation of the reality of his risen state, she then picks up her cross. She then carries out the responsibility of the mission given to her to preach the good news of his risen state. The apostles will soon do the same. So throughout this entire end section, again, we are continually seeing this revelation of what we are called to do. But we're also reminded that even if we fall away, even when we inevitably miss the mark of living up to this call towards the life in Christ and the mission of sharing the gospel, the good news of his loving kindness and actions towards us with the world, through our actions and through our manifestation of the church. We should know that it's not too late. We should know that, again, as long as we have breath in us, 
we can always pick up our cross. We can always get back on track. And this is, again, affirmed as we see within verses 12 and 13. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe. So again, we see this continued motif of disbelief from the apostles. They're consumed with their mourning. They're consumed with fear. So even though the second pair has approached them and said, hey, we've seen Jesus on the road, they still don't believe it. And yet we're going to see their belief here in verse 14. After he appeared to the eleven themselves as they sat at table, after this he appeared to the eleven themselves as they sat at table, and he abraded them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had raised. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink of any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So as Christ appears to the eleven. He, well, he abrades them, he yells at them, and we can see this as a very harsh response. It can be jarring to see Jesus all of a sudden yelling at his apostles because of their hardness of heart. Yet, what we see here is that there's no more time, in a sense, for the apostles to be treated with kid gloves. The seeds have been planted, as I mentioned in the prior section. He has told them what their mission is. He has prefigured his resurrection time and time again to them, as well as his passion. And now that he is standing face to face in his risen form before the eleven, they need something to shake them out of their hard-heartedness. They need something to reinvigorate them and bring them back to the light. And so, in abrading them, we see almost a, sh a shaking awake, in a sense. He's showing them that the time has come for them to live up to their apostolic mission, to share the gospel, to preach it through the whole world. And so after the apostles have been shaken awake, after they realize who it is who's standing in front of them, there's not time for them to celebrate. There's not time for them to sit around. Rather, Christ goes immediately into explaining the mission that they have before them, a mission which they have been prepared for this entire time as they've walked with him, as they've learned from him, as they've seen him carrying out these great works himself. And so he tells them 
that he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So when we see he who is baptized, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, what we see is that, well, salvation isn't just an act in itself of an isolated act of baptism. Rather, we see that belief is very closely associated with baptism. So if we are baptized, that's not the end, because baptism is only the beginning of this life in Christ. When we are baptized into Christ, we put on Christ, as St. Paul tells us. And yet, as we put on Christ, as we're anointed with chrism, after we've been submerged into the water and have died to this age, have been reborn in the messianic kingdom. We know that our work is not done. We know that in the same vein as these apostles, who have a greater mission ahead of them, we too are called to participate in a similar mission. We too are called to be co-workers in the saving acts of Christ. And that's how we become the church. Because again, if we're going to understand what St. Paul has to say, the church being a body that's comprised of many members, we then realize that all of us have a role to play. All of us have a distinct role to play in the body of Christ, in the church. And as we embody our call of living a life in Jesus Christ, we make the church, his body, manifest in the world. And if we become co-workers with Christ, then we will experience salvation because we've opened our hearts up to salvation. We have been participants in the salvation that's brought through the messianic kingdom in this life, not only in the one that is to come, Yet if we close ourselves off to the reality that Jesus has given us through his resurrection, if we harden our hearts and refuse to believe, because again, as we've mentioned before, belief is not strictly thinking about something and accepting it in your heart. Rather, belief is a constant relationship and struggle with God. And as we grow into this relationship with Christ, as we pray, as we meditate upon the scriptures, as we do good works and participate liturgically in the world, well, then we grow this relationship. Then we grow this belief. But if we close our hearts off to this possibility, then all that's left is condemnation. And that condemnation isn't God sitting there with a gavel at the end of our life saying, you did bad things, now you're going to hell. But rather, it's when we're face-to-face -face with God, the ideal, the ultimate ideal, that we are created in. Because again, we have his image and we're called to strive towards his likeness. If we are created in his image, when we are face to face with 
that full reality, when we are face to face with the ultimate person who loves us so immensely that he gave us his only begotten son to die on the cross, to show us the path back towards him, to show us that there is a possibility for us to enter into a relationship with him, not only in this life, but ultimately in the one that is to come. When we are confronted with that reality, if we have closed our hearts off to him, then our experience of God will be an eternal punishment. Our experience of God will be a condemnation. And that condemnation does not come directly from God because he's vindictive. But that condemnation comes from ourself because we have closed ourselves off from being able to accept the love which he's offering from being able to accept eternal joy. Yet if we become co-workers with Christ, if we put him on by humbling ourselves, constantly repenting, and doing everything that we can to try to live a life in him, well then here are the results. These signs will accompany those who believe, those who are constantly struggling with God and trying to enter deeper into this relationship with him. In the name of Christ, they will cast out demons. In the name of Christ, they will speak in new tongues. In the name of Christ, they will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, in the name of Christ, it will not hurt them. In the name of Christ, they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. There is no magic associated with our faith. And what I mean by that is there's not a specific systematic process that we go about to have good things happen in the world. Just because we're good people doesn't mean that we'll be able to cast out demons. Just because we believe that we're good people doesn't mean that we're going to be able to say what needs to be said to those who are willing to receive the word of God. Just because we think that we're good people doesn't mean that we can tempt fate and confront serpents and other venomous creatures in this world. Just because we think that we're good people doesn't mean that we're going to be able to heal the sick. All of these characteristics, all of these signs that accompany those who believe, accompany those who are constantly struggling in this journey towards a life in Christ. Because again, belief is this entering into a relationship with him by picking up our cross as he picked up his and following in his footsteps directly. And so as we continue to try to reorient our lives towards him, as we try to hold his example at the core of our being, as we ask ourselves every single day, God, help me see the things that you created me to do. Then we are participating in the self-emptying. Then we are participants in this extreme humility that's been articulated to us time and time again within this gospel account. And after we humble ourselves, and after we set out constantly to repent and reorient towards God, because we all fall away at times, then we see 
these great signs accompany those who have truly put on Christ. Because as Christ did great works, because he was the architect of all of creation, and when the architect of all of creation is confronted with the distortion, the distortion of his creation, that creation has no other response than to reorder itself. As we see that reordering in Christ, we see the saints do the same. That is the call of the church. We are called to be participants in this mission of Christ, co-workers with him. So as we put on Christ, as we strive continually to live a life in him, then we see the manifestation of that as presented within the world returning slowly to its intended state. We are called to be ministers over all of creation. And in doing so, we become co-workers with Christ. This is the call of the Christian. And this call allows for us to see the reality of the messianic kingdom that exists in Christ, the messianic king. Now finally, to close out this gospel, we will move to verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that attended it. Amen. Here in verse 19, we see a continuation, or a fulfillment rather, of the Son of Man motif from Daniel that we have heard of time and time again within this gospel account. For as was prefigured, the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of glory. In the same vein, we see Christ ascend into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, the Father. But this is not the end of the narrative. Yes, Christ ascended. But as we've talked about throughout this entire chapter, there's still work to be done. And so the church goes forth and preaches everywhere. Because again, we need to remember that the good news of the resurrection has, been pre has to be preached to the ends of the earth. All who are willing to accept the reality of the Messianic King, the reality of Christ, need to have the opportunity to hear of this revelation. And this evangelism is not done strictly through preaching and word alone, but it's done primarily through the actions of the church, through the actions of the, the Christians. And as the Christians work in this world, we see that they're not alone. For as we know in the book of Acts, there is a comforter who's sent to us. God's Spirit rests upon us 
and is given to us to strengthen us. And that's a reminder to us that we are never alone in our ministry, even though at times we can feel far away from God. Yet even if we feel far away, even if we feel like life is pulling us in all sorts of different directions, and because of that, we've fallen further and further away from where we feel called to be, the reality is that we still have this call to confirm this message, to preach it. And as we participate in this call to be apostles, as we participate in this call to minister to the world, we see Christ continue to be manifest. When we help those in need, when we go out of our way even to give somebody a smile who may be having a bad day, what we do in either those great examples or those little examples is reflect the light of Christ into the world. And so the call of a Christian, as we see here, is to continue to share that message, is to continue to love as Christ loved us and share that love, share that light with the world. Within the Gospel according to St. John, we see during Christ's farewell discourse a command that's given to the whole church, and that is to love one another as I have loved you. It's by this extreme love that the Christians will be marked as followers of Christ. But it's important to realize that when Jesus says this to his apostles, he's not just giving them a moral teaching. He's not saying love, period, in the same way that I love coffee or I love the various things that I have in my life. Rather, he shows his apostles in us, the church, ultimately what this love means and what this love looks like. Because love, from a Christian perspective, is not an empty emotion. Rather, love is self-sacrificial in a radical sense. It is offering up all that we have of ourself for the betterment of another. And Christ has made manifest in his church through this love because he first offered all of himself for us on the cross. And if we're to follow after him, if we're to follow in his footsteps, then we are called to participate in that same love. We are called to love one another in the same way that Christ has loved us. And offer that same love also to our Lord. And it's in that reciprocal participation in this self-emptying love. And this radical love of offering all that we can for the other. Of offering all that we can for the Lord. That we participate in the love that binds God as Trinity. The love that unites God as Father, Son, and Spirit. 
is in the same love that we see of the Son towards the Father. We see this participation fully in the Father's will. And the same can be said for the Spirit. This is how these three persons are bound perfectly together. They are one in essence and inseparable because of their radical participation in love. And it's that same love that's offered to us. It's that same love that's given to the church. And it's that same love that we are called to share, not only with members of the church, but with the whole of creation. Because it's only through that love, through that self-emptying, through that lowering of the self as Christ lowered himself. Because again, as we saw within this gospel account, Christ did not come to be served, but rather to serve. It's out of that service, it's out of that love that we make Christ manifest in the world that's so devoid of it. It's out of that love that we inject Christ, who is the light, into darkness. So as we contemplate this gospel account, and everything that the evangelist St. Mark has told us of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the suffering servant. We need to remember that a lot goes into this life. We have many motivating factors that contribute to who we become and the way that we live. Yet we're called to be ever vigilant as Christians. Because all too often there are things that grab for our attention, that try to pull us away from this call to be participants in the love of God, to share that love with the world. And oftentimes, as we saw as a common motif within this gospel account, the things that can hold us back from being able to be full participants within this love are our own hard-heartedness, our own calcification of the self, our closing off of our minds towards the possibility of being wrong, our closing off of our minds towards the possibility of there being something greater than us, outside of us. We are all called to serve in some sense. If we are created beings then there is a creator. And if there is a creator, well, as we see in this free relationship with Christ, that creator is a master. But that master should not be seen as a tyrant. Because as we see in God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, the relationship between God and man couldn't be further from tyrannical. But there are tyrannical forces in this world. There are those negative motivating spirits that want to isolate us. They want to cut us off from the broader creation. They want to cut us off from this call towards life in Christ. And if we decide to serve them, if we give ourselves over to resentment, anger, lust, hard-heartedness, you name it. All we're doing is closing ourselves off from the reality of a life in Christ. 
All we're doing is isolating ourselves and possibly isolating others. So we need to realize that we're pulled between these two worlds. We're pulled between the forces of this age and the reality of the messianic kingdom. A kingdom that we are anointed into through our baptism and through our chrismation and through our participation within Holy Communion. We are called to draw near to Christ, but we're not called to do that alone. Because again, the church is comprised of many members, for it is a body. So as we all struggle forward, especially now that we're on almost the eve of Great Lent, let's remember that life is a struggle. There is a cross that lies at the center of our Christian faith. There's a cross that Christ Jesus had to ascend. And it's through that cross, it's through his death, that we now have the possibility of eternal life and eternal joy. If Christ did not offer himself freely for us, then there would be no hope. Because there would be no example of this perfect love for us to be able to map onto and participate in. So in Christ's offering of himself for the life of the world on the cross, we are given this extreme example of love, this perfect example of self-emptying love. And it is in that same love that we are all called to be participants. So as we begin Great Lent, and as we move forward in our life in Christ, let's remember that it's never too late for us to live up to the call that God has given us for how we are to live our life. It's never too late for us to become full participants in his love and share that love with others. It's never too late for us to be pulled from darkness by our Lord and enveloped into his light. But we have the choice to be able to be participants in that. We can either serve the spirit of this age, or we can be full participants in the Messianic King, who has brought about the Messianic Age. The choice is ours. And that choice isn't the simple one that's made once, and then we're able to wash our hands of all of the things of this world. It's not a simple choice that we make once and all of a sudden we're saved. Rather, it's a choice that we make every minute of every hour of every day. The choice never ends. So let us be full participants in our Lord's love. Let us set out to be the church in the same way that the apostles and all those who witnessed Christ's resurrection were then messengers of his gospel, spreading that love into the world. This is the prayer that we should all have, that we may be able to live up to whatever it is that God is calling us to do. And that seems to be at the core of not only this gospel, but the whole gospel message. Because the message 
that we see in Christ's incarnation, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, is a message of hope. It's a message that tells us that there is more to life than we may think of in our isolation, because we are being called towards something greater. In our in participation within that greatness, in participation within that love, we experience fulfillment. In sharing that love, in sharing that greatness with the world, we also invite others to be participants in this life in Christ. So as we begin Great Lent, and as we set out to contemplate the scriptures further, and to ask God, what is it that he's trying to reveal to us that we are supposed to do with our life? Let's remember that it's very easy for us to fall. Yet in that same vein, we always have the opportunity to reorient towards God. So thank you all for listening to this well, not only this session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, but all 16 that we've done so far. As I mentioned at the beginning of this recording, it's a very surreal experience for me right now to be wrapping up this Bible study, uh, primarily because, as you can ask anyone who's trying to get me to do this in the first place, I pushed this off for a very long time. Uh, my intent was the first start this last year and I continued to kick the can down the road but I'm happy that we were able to finally do this and this is not the end because moving forward starting next week we will be picking up the gospel according to St. Luke and after that we will be following the acts of the apostles so for the next year my promise is that we will continue to slowly walk through the Gospel of St. Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And if God wills it, then we will continue forward. I just want to again take the opportunity to thank all of you who have been either listening to this recording, these recordings, or have been here for the live sessions. This has really been a eye-opening experience for me. And I'm humbled that anyone is interested in listening to my ramblings. <laughs> uh, I really hope that this Bible study gave all of you an opportunity to be able to gain a deeper understanding of the scriptures. And ultimately, again, the goal of this Bible study wasn't for me to sit here and tell you what the scriptures are saying. Rather, it's an invitation for you to be able to delve into them yourself. As I'm musing on the scriptures and trying to wrestle with their meaning, I hope that some of you, as you've been listening, have started to get an idea of how you can do the same in your own life. And nothing that I've said throughout this Bible study has been the mostly dogmatic capital D, uh, stance of the Orthodox Church. Again, these have been my best attempt that I can make at 
trying to make sense of the scriptures within the light of the education I've received and the life I've lived. So if I've led anyone astray, I have my deepest apologies. I pray that God grants me forgiveness for that sin. But I thank all of you again for listening, and I pray that this was a benefit to you in some way. And as we move forward, if anyone has any recommendations of how we could improve this Bible study, please feel free to let me know. And again, thank you all from the bottom of my heart for participating in this over these past 14 weeks. So until next week, when we begin Great Lent and also the Gospel according to St. Luke, I will talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, Links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m., and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.